there was a game that was very popular in the 1980s called Trivial Pursuit. Some of you would have known of and even have played that game. It was a board game in which you advance on the board by answering general knowledge questions. Now, it is not apparent why the architect of this game called it Trivial Pursuit. But I would suggest to you that that is an appropriate name. It's a very honest name. Because the term trivial means unimportant, of no consequence. And in truth, whether you won in a game of trivial pursuit or you lost, doesn't matter. It is a trivial endeavor. There are pursuits in life, such as this board game, that are trivial, that are unimportant. But there is a pursuit in life that is most important, that is consequential, that matters, that matters regarding the issues of life and death. It is the pursuit of God and the pursuit of a life of holiness. In fact, this is the theme of the paragraph that we read, particularly from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 14 to 17. Before we get to the text, nevertheless, I want to just recap where we have come in this marvelous book of Hebrews. The believers to whom the writer, who is unknown to us, but the believers to whom he wrote were believers who were becoming fatigued, tired in the Christian life. Many of them had faced harsh persecution, had lost possessions, had been beaten up for their faith in Christ. And they were discouraged. They were thinking of abandoning altogether the Christian life. And so, in a, in, to a large extent, Hebrews is an exhortation to them to stay the course, not to give in. And one of the things that he does in the first few chapters of Hebrews is to tell them that Jesus Christ is better. That's what you find from chapters 1 to almost all of chapter 4. Where he says, beginning, Christ is better than the angels. That he's better than Moses and Aaron. But from chapter 4, towards the end of chapter 4 to chapter 10, the writer will insist that Jesus Christ is not only better than angels and Moses and Aaron, that he's better than all of the Old Testament Levitical priests. And in fact, the bulk of the, of the book of Hebrews, from the end of chapter, 10, chapter 4 to chapter 10, is an exposition of our, of our Lord Jesus Christ and his greatness as our high priest, as the one who bore our sins on the cross. That that which sets Christ apart from all high priests is that he has offered to God one sacrifice on the cross for our sins, and that sacrifice is effective because it thoroughly and completely removes our sins, those who believe in him. From the end of chapter 10 to the end of chapter 13, we see as the last section of the book of Hebrews. And essentially what he does in this is beginning to apply what he has said before. He's applying the theology. So this is a section of application. I'm not suggesting that there's not application throughout the book. There are many warnings beginning in chapter 2. 
In chapter 6, you see that. And so I'm not suggesting that there are not exhortations and warnings throughout the book, but at the end of the book, from chapters uh, 10, at the end to chapter 13, the writer exhorts them. He applies theology to them. And what he does in chapter 11 is that he goes to the Hall of Fame and he brings before the Christians some of the great spiritual stalwarts of the past and says, these are people who suffered much, but they endured. And you know how they endured? They endured the Christian life by faith. And the implication there is that you too must endure by faith. He begins chapter 12, where we are anchored, by telling them that the greatest example of endurance in the Christian life, the, the greatest example for us in the Christian life is none else but Jesus Christ, who himself endured the cross, despising its shame, and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Now, what you find then from chapter 12, verse 5, to the end of the chapter, is a call to run the Christian race Enduring. He begins by saying, if you're going to run the Christian race and endure, you must begin by looking at Christ. But then in verse 4 to 13, he says, if they are to run the Christian race and to run it with endurance, they must endure discipline. And that is a fatherly discipline of God. That those who are Christians and are involved in the Christian life will encounter divine chastisement, divine discipline, not because God is mean or unkind, but because it is a means of purifying believers. And then in our section, verses 14 to 17, he tells them that if they are to run the Christian race, they must run it pursuing holiness. And the end of it, the end of the chapter, he's going to tell them that if they're to run the race, they must remember that they are members of the new covenant that is of Mount Zion and not of the old covenant, Mount Sinai. However, our task is to look at then this call to run this race by pursuing holiness, which we find in verses 14 to 17. There are three thoughts I want to leave with you regarding the pursuit then of holiness. First, I want us to look at the command to pursue holiness. Secondly, I want us to consider the reason to pursue holiness, and then thirdly and finally, the manner in which we are to pursue holiness. The text of Scripture that we have before us, in Hebrews 12, verse 14, he says, pursue peace with all people, and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. First of all, then, the command to pursue holiness. He begins with a command to pursue peace. That relationship of harmony with one another. That those who are involved in the Christian life, who are living for God, must be peaceable people. These are people who are peacemakers. That there cannot be a life unto God that is lived in contention, in feuding, in fighting. It is why he begins. And then he commands them to pursue Holiness. And you may wonder, well, why do we spend so much time on holiness? Because this is a primary command in this passage. You know that because he elaborates on holiness, not only in verse 14, but in verses 15 and 17. In a sense, then, peace is part and parcel of a life of holiness. Not that it put otherwise, people who are holy are people who will live in peace. It's a sign of unholiness uh, to live in a warlike state. 
And there are many people who tell you, you know, well, I just tell people my mind. You know, I just give it to them straight. And I don't really care if it hurts them or if they're upset with me, I just let it rip. But holy people are people who seek peace, who are concerned about others. It is not seeking peace at all expense. It is not compromising biblical truths or biblical values so that we may just be in harmony with everyone. Sometimes things that are difficult must be said. But the overall thrust of the believer is not to live in a warlike state. And so he says, pursue peace. And then he says, pursue holiness. Now let's break down the command a little bit. First of all, the term to pursue, diakio, is a very strong verb. It is a verb that, can, that means literally to hunt. It means to follow after, to pursue. It can often be used, and as Paul himself used it, to mean to persecute. So diakio means to hunt, to chase after, to run after, to pursue. It refers to rapid and decisive movement towards an object. It is movement, but movement towards a goal. And the goal before them is holiness. Throughout the scriptures, believers are told to pursue different ends and different objectives. They are to pursue hospitality, that is kindness to others. They are to pursue love. They are to pursue doing good, 1 Thessalonians 5.15. They are to pursue such virtues like righteousness and faith and patience and gentleness, 1 Timothy 6, 6, to 11, 6 verse 11. But now in our text, he says, pursue, run after, hunt after peace with all men and also pursue holiness holiness. He's dealing with the practical living of the believer. First of all, we need to recognize that for the writer of Hebrews, holiness is a spiritual characteristic that believers must pursue, that they must run after. The verb to pursue is in the present imperative and it means that it must be an ongoing pursuit. So you could read this, go on pursuing peace and go on pursuing holiness. But right here we have a question that we must answer. What does it mean to be holy? What does it mean to be holy? Well, there are two terms, one in the Hebrew, one in the Greek, that defines holiness. The first term in the Old Testament is kwadosh. And the term in the New Testament in the Greek is hagios, quadosh and hagios. Now this, so uh, hagios in the New Testament is a translation of quadosh in the Old Testament. Well, what does quadosh in the Hebrew mean? Literally, the term quadosh means to cut, to separate. That's the first meaning of holiness. Holiness is separation. It is separation from the profane and the unclean. Used in a religious sense, Quadosh means to be separated from anything and from everything that is sinful or displeasing to God. That's the first aspect, separation. But Quadosh and Hagias mean not only separation, which is negative, 
positively it means devotion. It means to be devoted to the good. So not only does holiness mean a separation from what is evil, from what is sinful, from what God forbids, but it is devotion, consecration to doing what God desires, to pleasing God, to living for God. So holiness is separation from evil and it is devotion to the good, to the pure, to the perfect, to a life pleasing unto God. That's a holy person. You may say a holy person is one who has abandoned a life of sin and is pursuing a life pleasing unto God. Such a person is a holy person. And the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace with all men and holiness. This life of separation from sin and devotion to God. Pursue holiness. It's a command. It's not an advice. It's a demand of Scripture. We must pursue as a spiritual characteristic this life that is separated unto God. So holiness, as we see here, is a characteristic that we as believers must pursue. But for the writer of Hebrews, not only is holiness to be seen as a pursuit a pursuit of a characteristic or a spiritual virtue, but holiness is revealed in the book of Hebrews as a gracious gift. And it is a gracious gift that we receive through the death of Christ. So that most important text on this subject may be found in Hebrews 10 verse 10, where the, where, where the writer, of course, talking about the death of Christ, he says, by that will, Hebrews 10 verse 10, by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So, you know, the, the adjective is holy. But the verb that is used is sanctified. Sanctified. You know, it, it, it probably would sound very not so nice to talk about, you know, this person is holy or lives a holy life. That person is holified. Well, that's not how the language works. It doesn't use the verb holified. There is no such verse called holified. It uses the verb sanctify. But holy and sanctify refer to the same thing. The life that is separated unto God. This is a gift. And the writer says, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. He says, we have been sanctified. And there it is the perfect passive of the verb, to be made holy. We have been made holy once and for all through the blood of Christ. What is he saying? He's saying that Jesus Christ came to do that will of God. And by doing that will of God, that is by dying, by giving his body on the cross for our sins, he has sanctified us. By a once-for-all death on the cross, we have been sanctified definitively. What does it mean we have been sanctified perfectly? Well, it doesn't mean that we have been made sinless. It is describing our positional relationship with God. We have been taken out of the sphere of the unholy and the common, and we have been put in the sphere of the holy. In other words, when Christ died on the cross, he sanctified us by taking us out of a sphere in which we once lived as unholy people and devoted us to God as his holy people. In other words, he made us belong to God. And thus we are holy because we are devoted to one thing, to one person. 
So Christ has set us apart by his death on the cross for God's special use. And it is for that reason why when the Apostle Paul talks to Christians, you think of the Corinthian church. And I've said on many occasions, you know, there are some pastors who are very strong and powerful and great. But I would tell you that any pastor who thinks of the church of Corinth would tremble if they were ever called to pastor the church. It was the most difficult church. You think of difficult churches as the pastor today? Well, think of the Corinthian church. They were a proud, arrogant people. They did not take counsel. They were immoral. And they were proud about their ignorance about many spiritual things. Every pastor, if they were called, would, do, would at least try to do a kind of Jonah. They would try to run the opposite direction until the Lord brings them back. So this is a church that, is not, that, that you would have great difficulties with. Clashing personalities. And yet when the apostle Paul writes to them and he begins the epistle, he says to the saints who are in Corinth, to those who are holy in Corinth. But how do you reconcile that? Well, when Paul calls them Hagias, saints, holy, he means that by Christ's death, they have been put aside, separated from their former life, and they are now devoted to Christ. Christ's death on the cross devotes us to God. So what is the connection between what Christ has done, setting us apart for God, and the command to be holy? Well, put bluntly, Paul is saying, that we are, oh, we are holy because Christ's death has devoted us to God. Therefore, we are to live practically as holy people. It is Christ who has made us holy, who has set us apart once and for all for God. And f- for that reason, we are to live out holiness. We are to live in peace and we are to live in holiness precisely because of the work of the cross. We are to live a separated life, a devoted life to God. So for Paul, for for the writer of Hebrews, holiness then is a command, a pursuit in which we must be involved. But it is also based upon the finished work of Christ as a gift from Christ. Thirdly, for the writer of Hebrews, holiness is the ultimate goal of God's working in our lives. If you were to just go back in our text, in chapter 12 to to verse 10 and following, you will see that the writer says this. Because he's talking about divine discipline. And he says, For they indeed, that they refer to earthly fathers, for they indeed for a few days chasten us as seem best to them. But he that is God, for our profit, that we may be partakers, that we may be sharers of his holiness. So what does he say? He's saying you're to pursue holiness. Because Christ himself has earned that for you, has made you holy on the cross. And not only that, because God's goal is that you might ultimately, at the end of the age, share his holiness. That's the command that must be understood in this context. That holiness is a demand for us to pursue practical holiness. But that holiness we pursue, first of all, our Lord Jesus Christ has already made us holy by his death. And that holiness that we pursue, it's the ultimate goal of our lives. Well, we see then the command, pursue peace and then pursue holiness. But not only do we see the command to pursue holiness, we see the reason to pursue holiness. Let's go back then to verse 14. Pursue peace with all people and holiness 
And then he qualifies, without which no one will see the Lord. So the question is, why do we pursue holiness? Because the writer says, the only way you and I will see the Lord is by chasing after, pursuing with all our energies, holiness. That without holiness, no one, it is not possible for any person to see God without a life lived, devoted to God. The Bible tells us in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 verse 8, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. The pure in heart is a holy person, because pure in heart refers to one who is governed by one thing. That person does not have a divided heart. That person is in heart is integrated. That person is characterized by single-mindedness and thus devoted to God. That person is pure because they're devoted to God. So he says, pursue holiness. Why? Because without it, no man will see the Lord. Now, let's talk about seeing the Lord. What does it mean to see the Lord? I would suggest to you that seeing the Lord encaptures encapsulates all of the blessings that we are looking for in eternity to come. Seeing the Lord refers to eternal life that we will have at the end of the age. It summarizes the blessings that we will enjoy in heaven. Now, he says, pursue holiness. Because without holiness, no one will see the Lord. What does holiness, what does seeing the Lord mean? Well, older theologians call it the beatific vision. A vision that is a blessed vision. And why is seeing the Lord then the summary of all the blessings we will enjoy? It is because of the characteristic of seeing the Lord. Seeing the Lord entails three elements. First of all, it entails knowledge. Knowledge of God. To see the Lord means that believers will know Him. And know Him as best as it is possible for any human being purified and perfected to know God. The seeing of God will lead to knowledge. That is, it will lead, one, one older theologian says, the clearest knowledge of God. Notice what the Apostle Paul says regarding seeing God. He says, now, for now we see in a mirror, dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part. But then I shall know just as I also am known. We see things dimly and darkly. We cannot truly understand God in his immensity. But he says when we see him, we shall see him face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall know just as we are known. We'll have a greater knowledge of God. So to see God is to know him in a way that we have not yet come to know him in this life. But the vision of God, the beatific vision, does not only consist of knowledge, it consists of transformation. Transformation, a perfection of our persons. John tells us what will happen when we see the Lord in 1 John 3, 2-3. He says, Beloved, now we are children of God. And it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, 
For we shall see him as he is. And everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. We are going to see God in Christ. God is invisible. But it is in the manifestation of the living, risen Christ, glorified Christ, that we will see God. And when we see him, John says, we will be like him. That means we will be transformed, we'll be perfected, all our faculties, all our desires, our entire person will be perfect. We will be like Jesus Christ. You see, the vision of God leads to true knowledge of God. It leads not only to knowledge, it leads to transformation. And thirdly, the vision of God leads to perfect satisfaction. In the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, John talks about the life to come, the life of heaven. And he says in chapter 22 of Revelation 2 to 3, he says, And there shall be no more curse. But the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, in the new heavens and the new earth. And his servants shall serve him. And then in verse 4 he says, And they shall see his face, and his name shall be on their forehead. Seeing the face of God in Christ is the great blessing to which we aspire, not only because there will be full knowledge of God, not only because there will be transformation, but that there will be satisfaction. We will see God and know him as fully as we are capable as finite beings to know him. We'll be like him in moral character, but we will know satisfaction. You see, in seeing him, we will experience the fullness of fellowship and joy. We will know something of the infinite and incomparable love of God. You see, heaven is a world of joy, a world of satisfaction. Look at what the psalmist says, as for me... I shall see your face in righteousness. He says, I shall see your face in righteousness. I will be satisfied when I awake in your likeness in Psalm 17 verse 15. You see, to see God is to know full satisfaction and joy, to know the fullness of his love. It will result in perfect joy because in Psalm 16 verse 11, the psalmist says, you will show me the path of life in your presence is fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures for more. To see God simply then is to know him fully as we are capable as human beings. It is to reflect him fully. To see God is not only to know him fully and to reflect him fully, but it's to enjoy him fully. This vision of God consists then of knowledge, of transformation, of satisfaction. But the writer of Hebrews says, pursue peace and yes pursue holiness because without holiness no man can see God no man will have this full vision of God no one will have this full knowledge of him this full transformation of life or full satisfaction of heart unless one pursues holiness it's a command pursue holiness the reason is because without it we cannot see God you can't go to heaven you can't go to heaven Unless you are pursuing holiness, unless you are committed to live for God's glory, you cannot enter heaven, you cannot see God, you cannot enjoy the favor of God's face unless here and now in this life you live holy. It is not possible. So then how do we do this? We now move thirdly to the manner in which we pursue holiness. We have gotten the command 
we have seen the reason, because without it we cannot see God, but now we see the man. In fact, he tells us that if we are to pursue holiness, we must guard against three dangers. We see that in chapter 12, verses 15 to 17. Looking carefully. Looking carefully. In fact, what he does in verse 15 and 16 is that he uses three clauses, each of them beginning with that, anyone, or less anyone. You see that in verse 15, looking carefully, less anyone. And he says in verse 15, less any root. And in verse 16, less there be any fornicator. He's explaining. And he begins then by saying looking, the participle. You pursue God by looking. This term looking that he uses here is a term that means to be careful to pay attention to these things. But the term to, that he says looking, it means not only looking over ourselves, but looking out for one another. That's what, that's, in fact, that, that nuance of looking out for others is part and parcel of the life of holiness. Put, set, put differently, to live a holy life is not just a matter of the self, caring for yourself. Living holy lives mean looking out for other Christians. Uh, holiness is pursued in community. It's not an individual sport. Yes, there is a, a vast individual component that I must be holy, you must be holy, but holiness requires concern for others. And so he says looking, looking, looking out for others. Well, in our text, he says looking carefully, Lest anyone falls short of the grace of God. How do we pursue holiness? We have first of all, he says, must guard against the danger of falling short of the grace of God. This grace of God, he reminds us, has been revealed to us in Jesus Christ. We see this in chapter 2 verse 9, but we see Jesus who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone without distinction. What is he saying? God's grace has been revealed, that Jesus Christ came and that he suffered death for his people, but he is a manifestation of the grace of God. He tells us in Hebrews that not only does Christ manifest the grace of God, but that the grace of God is available to all believers. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace. He says that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in the time of need in chapter 4 verse 16. So grace has been revealed in Christ on the cross. Grace is available to us. God's throne is a throne of grace. But we also, we also learn that the Holy Spirit is the mediator of grace. He is the agent of grace. For in the warning that he gives to believers, he says, how much worse punishment do you suppose will be thought worthy who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, counted the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified a common thing, and insulted, here it is, the Spirit of grace. He calls the Holy Spirit the spirit of grace, because it is he who brings grace and mediates grace. Now he says, they must not, they must be careful, they must be on their guard if they are to pursue holiness, not to fall short of the grace of God. They must not live their lives then without acknowledging grace and without depending upon grace. 
That's the first way that they are going to safeguard themselves and pursue in this path of holiness. They must not fall short of the grace of God. The second danger they must be aware of they are going to pursue holiness is that they must guard against the root of bitterness. Now, what does the root of bitterness mean? Does it mean we must guard against that bitterness of heart? You know, that kind of resentment that we feel when we have been unfairly treated. We're angry because we've been passed over promotion and we are bitter. And every time somebody comes around us, we spew bitterness because we are upset that we have not been justly or fairly treated. Is that the root of bitterness? I would suggest that he's saying more than that. He's talking about a shoot of bitterness that can only be understood by reading the context of the Old Testament where this same expression occurs. The root of bitterness occurs in Deuteronomy 29, verses 18 and 19, where Moses says to them, he says that there must not be among you a man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turns away from the Lord our God and go and serve the gods of these nations, and that there may not be among you a root bearing bitterness or wormwood. And so it may not happen when he hears the word of this curse that he blesses himself in his heart saying, I have peace even though I follow the dictate of my heart. What is the root of bitterness? The root of bitterness that he warns about, that which is capable of infecting the community, is not merely bitter feeling, it is simply departing from the living God. The root of bitterness which can contaminate the community is nothing less than apostasy. They must guard against falling short of grace. They must guard against the root of bitterness, that heart of rebellion that turns away from God, that heart of sinfulness that poisons one person and poisons one's community. We have said already that genuine believers do not fall away. But those who fall away prove that they were never part of the community, did not belong to God in the first place. The third thing, the third danger which they must guard against in the pursuit of holiness is the danger of immorality and ungodliness. And these two things go together. Verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau, who for one morsel of food sold his birthright, for you know that afterward, when he wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance, even though he sought it diligently with tears. What does it, the writer do? He's telling us that we must pursue holiness. There are dangers in the road that leads to the life of godliness. There's a danger of falling short of grace, of not depending on the grace of God. There's a danger of a root of bitterness, of departure from God, of apostasy. But he says there's another danger that is revealed in immorality and ungodliness. And he, what he does, he goes back to scripture. He goes back to the book of Genesis and chapter 25, verse 29 and following. And he tells us of an immoral man and an ungodly man. And he says, I want to remind you of Esau. If you are to pursue holiness, you must be the opposite of this man. You must not be like him. Well, what, what's the story of Esau? We know the story of Esau because in Genesis 25, we are told of his birth that Esau, we were told in Genesis that Esau was the firstborn for Isaac. And one day he went out in the forest to hunt because Esau was a hunter. 
Jacob, his brother, was a mama's boy. He stayed home. He did all the cooking. And, 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 and there's no problem with men. Real men can cook. There's no problem with men who cook. So he was staying at home and he was cooking. But, but Esau was a man's man. He went out to hunt the food. And this particular day he came home and he was very hungry. And he smelt lentil soup that his brother Jacob had made. And so he says, I'm exhausted. Give me some of the soup. And Jacob, whose name means heel grabber, a conniver, a trickster, says, well, you want some soup? Sell me your birthright. Now, the birthright was what the elders get, the blessing that the elder son gets. So if you have a family and there are three kids in the family, in ancient Israel, the oldest child would receive the lion's share, the greater weight, the greater part of the parent's estate. And so... By right, Esau was entitled to the greater part of Isaac's estate. And Jacob says, now give me your inheritance. Give me the portion that was to come to you. Esau now responds to him, I am dying. It's rather an exaggeration because he's only hunting one day, probably after breakfast, so it's not possible he's going to die just by missing a meal. But he says, I'm dying. What good is my birthright to me? And so he swore and gave his birthright to his brother Jacob. And the writer of Hebrews commenting says, he despised his birthright. He treated it lightly. You see, he was in line to receive the Abrahamic blessing, the blessing through which the Messiah would come. But he traded that which was spiritual and eternal for a plate of red lentil soup. The red man, because his name Esau means red. The red man sold his birthright for a plate of red soup. He gave up spiritual blessings, eternal blessings, because you see, his God was his belly. The Bible says he was immoral, sexually immoral. Don't be like Esau who was sexually immoral, and don't be like Esau who was godless. He was obtuse. He was spiritually dense. He was spiritually dull. He was a man who traded that which was spiritual and eternal for, flesh, for fleshly pleasure. To satisfy his carnal appetite, he gave up on heaven. He gave up spiritual things. Make it your greatest quest in life to be holy. We are often pre- preoccupied with a lot of different pursuits. Years ago, there was a young man in seminary. You shall not call his name. He was different. Whenever he met a young woman, whether here, in seminary, or in other churches, he would do two things. The first thing he would do would be to identify himself. He would say, my name is so-and-so. And the next amazing thing he did was he would ask a question. A simple question. Are you married? Are you married? And then he said, do you want to be married? Now, a lot of young ladies were very offended. And rightly so. Can you imagine somebody coming up to your butt and going, do you want to get married? Well, it's clear that his pursuit was marriage. And marriage is honorable. And ought to be pursued with God 
leads us in that direction. But there are greater pursuits than marriage. We are living in an age where we believe we must pursue financial stability, and that is okay. Some believe we must pursue success. We want to be the best in our office. We want to be the best in our career. Some pursue their hobbies. They like to make model trains or model planes and they spend lots of time. Their hobby may be online gaming. They pursue hobbies. But while these quests may have particular and limited value, the great quest of life is that we must run after and chase after holiness. Pursue holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. It's an indicative, it is an imperative, it's not an extra, it's not an added extra to life. It is the very essence of the Christian life, seeking to live, to please, and to glorify God. It demands all concentration, all effort. Pursue. The Apostle Paul uses this language in Philippians 3. He says, I have not yet arrived, I have not yet attained, but this one thing I do, forgetting the things that are behind, I press. This language of pressing is a language of pursuing. And my dear friends, the question before us is, what are you pursuing? What's the pursuit of your life? What's the thing that sucks up all of your energy? What is it you give yourself to most assiduously? Is it, is it to be like Christ? You see, my dear friends, you must seek with all energy, with all the powers that you have been given, to pursue holiness. You're not going to drift into holiness. Nobody can be holy by accident. It requires a commitment to run after it, to pursue it. To live in private and in public in a manner that pleases God. To ensure that all our tastes, the movies we watch, the, the, the music we listen to, the places we go, the choices we make, uh, the priorities that we have in life, that all of these things are to the glory of God. We are to pursue holiness. And my friends, if we are to pursue holiness, we must do this knowing two things. We must do this knowing that God himself is holy. He says, be he holy, for I am holy. We can never be in heaven if we are unholy people. You go back and read Revelation 22, that only those who have been cleansed will enter into heaven. There must be a pursuit of holiness because God is holy. But there must be a pursuit of holiness because Jesus Christ has died for us. In other words, we pursue holiness out of love for Christ. It is he who shouldered the burden of our sins. We don't have to climb our way into heaven. We don't have to work our way into heaven. Jesus Christ has bought our passage to heaven by dying on the cross. He has come and taken away our sins. And if we believe in him... We shall be set aside as holy unto the Lord. And then we are to pursue it. But you can only pursue holiness with the cross before you. Without, by looking to Jesus Christ who himself has satisfied God's wrath. You see, holiness begins by knowing the character of God as holy. And by realizing that Jesus Christ has paid for all our sins. And that then is the impetus for us to live holy. Because Christ has already granted us the holiness that we need for heaven. But this life of holiness demands three things. It demands watchfulness. We must watch over ourselves and watch out for one another that we do not depart from the living God. 
We are not to live in sexual immorality. We are not to sleep around. We are not to become involved in sexual, in sexual deeds before we are married. And if we are married, we are to remain faithful in our marriage. We are not to be immoral, sexually immoral like Esau was. We must discipline our bodies. But neither, if we are to be holy people, we must be watchful not only in terms of sexuality, but we must be watchful in terms of self-gratification. We must not make our appetite our God. We must not live to satisfy fleshly desires. We must not live like Esau. There are many who are following the footsteps of Esau. They're selling heaven for a relationship. They're selling heaven for a good time. They're selling heaven for the friendship of men and the friendship of their peers. They're selling heaven for money. You see, many are following. They, 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 they are selling heaven. And yet the, the scripture says, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? What is more valuable than our souls? We cannot put anything then above Christ. We must pursue him. We must bring all our passions under control and pursue heaven single-mindedly, looking on to Christ, running on to pleasing him. Because you see, that is of greatest price. How do you pursue heaven? By being watchful. That you're not putting earthly things above heavenly things. That you're not putting carnal and physical things above spiritual things because they do not profit in the end. This world, John says, is passing away and it's lost thereof. What are you selling heaven for? What are you putting above Christ and spiritual things? Put nothing above him. Make him chief and foremost. Don't put your worldly concerns, your possession. Don't put your money, don't put sex, don't put career, don't put your education before the pearl of great price. Put Christ first. Begin by acknowledging your sin, saying, woe am I, I'm a man of unclean lips. Tell him of your sins, resolved by his grace to forsake them, and then pursue him in holiness of life, believing in Christ. How do you pursue heaven? By being watchful over yourself and watchful over others. You pursue heaven by depending upon grace. We must not fall short of grace. That everything that we need for life and for godliness has been given in Christ. The only way we can be watchful is by reliance upon grace. And every power, everything that you need to live godly and holy in this life is in Jesus Christ. So you ought to get up every morning looking to Christ in prayer, asking for the strength to resist temptation and to live for God. The reason we fail so often is because we lean on the arm of flesh. And we will always fail. It is not by might or by power, but by my spirit. You see, as you rely upon divine grace, unmerited favor, you are given power to live the Christian life. But it's only by drinking from the stream of grace in Christ. How do you live the Christian life? Now, how do you live holy? You keep watch over your heart, lest you depart from God. You rely upon the God who supplies all grace. But you run this race of holiness by keeping before your eyes the wonderful prospect of seeing God. 
It is William James, the American pragmatic philosopher, who says we must measure everything by their cash value. Cash value. What does he mean by that? He says, really, you should judge everything in life by what it brings to you. So, if you live for self and live for the world, what does it bring? It brings a life of eternal regret and eternal sorrow. That's the cash value of living for the world and living for material things. What does it bring to you by living for God, by living a holy life? It brings to you a vision, a permanent vision of seeing God. Why live a holy life? Because by living a holy life one day, by the grace of God, you will see God. And to see the face of God is to know the favor of God. In the Old Testament, to see God's face was not just to have knowledge of him. It was to know his favor. Absalom wanted to see the face of David after he had killed his brother. Not because he wanted to know if his father was getting old. To see the face of his father was to know favor. And you and I must run this race. Living by the grace of God as best as we can to please him. Knowing that at the end of this race, we shall see God. And we shall be with him and we shall enjoy him forever. So, my dear friends, whatever you do, pursue peace with all men and pursue holiness. Make this moment a moment of decision. Say in your heart as you're moved by the Spirit, Lord God, by your grace, I determine here and now to pursue you, to pursue holiness, and to pursue heaven. These are my pursuits. Say this now. Commit yourself to Christ, and you will receive his strength and grace for Christ's sake. Amen. Pray with me, my friends. Lord, we have your sobering word to pursue holiness. And we know that, Lord, you have not given it to us to discourage us, or to make us doubt the security we have in you, but to guard us against carelessness and presumption. We thank you, Father, that the holiness we need has already been achieved in Jesus. That all that we need for holiness is in in your grace. And so we come to you now and we say, Lord, continue to change our hearts and minds. Help us to see the things that are truly valuable things that are truly meaningful to pursue you. And we pray for those who have come and do not know a relationship with you, for whom you are not their priority, that they might make it today a priority to know you and to follow you by resting on Christ. Father, we pray for all of us, for the sins that hinder us, that we might indeed abandon them and pursue heaven. We ask this for Christ's sake. Amen.